0: You've been walking with me through uh, this five-chapter letter of James. We've been talking about the moral and spiritual aspects of the economic downturn. This is a tough crisis you and I are in. It's the uh, worst one since the Great Depression. Most of us here were not around during the Great Depression. We have a few people in our church who were, and they tell me that these times carry them back in their memories to the times back in the 20s and 30s of the last century. James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. It's around 50 to 53 AD, and the area around Jerusalem is experiencing an economic downturn. It started as a famine, and it grew into a full-blown crisis in the area of what is now Israel and Palestine. And he was concerned about the the flock that he had in his church. Not only those who attended where he was in Jerusalem every Sunday, but those who had moved away and were still keeping in contact. He was concerned about all of them because, ladies and gentlemen, it's in the darkest of times that our faith can burn the brightest. It is the trials of your life and mine that, that will dictate whether our faith is real or fake. And it is the darkness of our times that will reveal how deep is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that some of you are going through crises. Some of it is because of this economy, but some of it has nothing to do with economy. It has to do with either health issues or relationship issues or parenting issues. Dealing with with aged parents. Lots of issues are on your plate. And I believe James has something to say to us. In the final two verses of this wonderful letter, James revisits an issue that he's already touched on once before, but he wants to leave it as the last taste in our mouths. And I think the church, not just Palmetto Baptist Church, but every church that bears the name of Christ needs this taste in our mouth because I really believe that we have lost part of our purpose. And these last two verses really come to roost on that purpose. The title of this message is When the Crisis Gets the Best of and Brings Out the Worst in Someone. James chapter 5, beginning with verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your spirit is thick in this place. And Lord, we are grateful for your presence. You are the reason, ultimately, that we are here. Without you, there is no reason to be here. There's no reason for a church called Palmetto Baptist Church. There's no reason for a building in which we worship. There's no reason for anything we do if we don't have you. Lord, you've given us your word to guide us. And you've given us your example to instruct us. When you were here, it was those whose lives had been ruined that you spent your time with. It was those people who had felt defeated, failures, and beaten down that you directed your attention toward. And Lord, you call your church to no less. Lord, I pray that we'd be about what you are about, because that's the only game in town. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. If you were caught this next week, arrested in Palmetto for driving under the influence And your picture and a big article about you driving under the influence is plastered on the cover of the South Fulton Citizen and the Noonan Times Herald. Would you come to church next Sunday? Steve Brown is a professor at the Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. He's one of my favorite authors. He's an out-of-the-box writer. And while I don't agree with everything he writes, I love reading his books. He had a friend whose name was Fred Smith. And Fred Smith used to, whether it was someone he knew or a stranger that he met, he used to come up to them and he'd ask them the question, if you were caught driving under the influence next week and your picture and the article were plastered all over the local newspaper, would you come to church next Sunday? He approached Steve Brown and he asked him that same question. Brother Steve, he said. Steve was his pastor. Steve was uh, filling in at at the church where Fred was the pastor. And he came up, Fred came up to Steve and said, Brother Steve, if you were caught driving under the influence, and and continued with the question, would you come to church next Sunday? And Steve said, (laughs) You know, Fred, you've got to give me a warning before you ask me a question like that. He said, "Be honest with you. I don't know if I'd come to church next Sunday or not." He said, "What I'd probably do, probably do, is is uh, is, is arrange for some guys to fill in for me for probably about a month before I'd come back." And Fr- and Fred Smith said this. He said, "Well, that's a shame." He said, "Because church ought to be the most welcoming place that you could go next Sunday." He said, that'd be kind of like me getting in a, a horrific automobile accident and, and I was bleeding and I had broken bones. And the paramedic came to me and said, we've got to rush you to the hospital. And I said, well, no, 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 take me home. I've got I've to get my, my wounds cleaned up and this bleeding staunched and I've, I've got to get these bones healed and then I'll be willing to go to the hospital. No, ladies and gentlemen, when a person has failed, the very place that they ought to be embraced is at the house of God. This is not a courtroom where we judge people. It's a hospital where we heal people. And this is a point that James feared during the crisis the church of his day would lose sight of. And I believe it is is a purpose that our church, and I'm talking about the church as a whole, that includes Palmetto Baptist, I believe that is something that we have lost sight of, and and I know this is true because I know of people who have failed miserably and who still struggle with failing. It's not like they can, they can click a light switch and also I don't fail anymore. That was back before I knew the Lord. Now I know the Lord and I don't fail. We hear that a lot. We hear that a lot in movies that we see, so-called Christian movies. Well, before before I met Christ, I was a failure. But then I met Christ, and everything's been rosy ever since. Excuse me, I'd just soon not watch a movie like that. Because real life is like this. You fail before you met Christ, and then you receive Christ as your Savior, and then you walk alone, and you still struggle with failing. I know people who are born-again Christians who are failing in their lives and they don't come to church because they know, they know, they know that it's like the church has this big spotlight and we search out those failing people and when they come in, we find out where they are and we just put a narrow focus right on them. Look who's here, Mr. Failure. You and I are in this economic crisis and there will be in this crisis people who fail. One of the things that that I feel like God has shown me in in this epistle of James, this letter of James, is that he's speaking to more than one group of people in in this group of Christians to whom he's writing. There are four groups that I can identify that he's writing to. First of all, he's writing to the people who are struggling in the crisis, and most of what he says is addressed to these people trying to help them cope with uh, the struggle of the crisis. uh, Chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, where he says, he says, listen, when you are going through this struggle, count it all joy, because God in your struggle is doing something in that struggle that he will not do otherwise. In, In that passage, he's talking to these people who are struggling in the crisis. And then, secondly, he's talking to people who are contributing to the crisis. I should, contributing is really a kind word. It should be they're causing the crisis. He opens up one of his chapters and he says, You rich people? And he's very condemning of these people. He's not, and it's not that the Bible is down on rich people. They're some of the most godly people in the Bible were wealthy people. But in, in James' case, he's dealing with, with people who because of their abuse of other people and their mistreatment of other people, they are causing the crisis. And so James writes some pretty stern words to them. Third, he's talking to those people who have the ability to help others in the crisis. That's what these last two verses are addressed to. People who have the wherewithal. Yeah, they're going through the crisis and somewhat struggling, but by and large, they have been able to go along unscathed. They're still, they still have their income, they still have a job, they still have uh, wealth, even though it may not have been quite as much as they had a year ago or two years ago, but uh, they still have enough that they could help some people if they just open their eyes and see those people in need and reach out to them. And then, finally, he, he talks to those people who have been ruined by the crisis. And James is very kind to these people. He doesn't say a whole lot to them. Instead, he lets them overhear him talking to the people who could help them. I find that amazing. Here you have, over here to his right, these people who have, they haven't just gone through the crisis and stroke, they have been ruined by the crisis. They've been ruined. They've fallen, they feel defeated, they feel like failures. And rather than James talking to them and saying, look, I love you and I'm I'm here to help you and I'm I'm going to give you some principles to live by. Instead, he says, says, I want you to listen up. And he talks to everybody else who could help them. And in that, you know, know, we overhear better than we hear. You, You know that, don't you? We do. One of my favorite preachers, Fred Craddock, you've heard me mention his name many times. He wrote a book, a classic book in the 70s called Overhearing the Gospel. When he does a funeral service, he never speaks to the grieving family of the lost one, the one who has died. He never speaks directly to them. Instead, he speaks to the congregation about them, about how much he loves them, about how they brave the storm through the illness of their loved one. It's a very gracious thing, overhearing. James lets these people who are ruined overhear him talking to everybody else, including his conversations with God, to help them. Four different groups that he deals with. And it, it, it is with regard to this last group that these last two verses are written about. He doesn't write these verses to them, but he writes these two verses about them. And he says... Uh, three or four things that I want to bring to your attention this morning. First of all, he tells us that some people could be ruined by this crisis. You see, James is a realist. He's not coming out at these people and saying, Look, I know you're going through a hard time, but if you just get your heart right with God and accept Jesus as your Savior and read your Bible every day, all of a sudden you're going to get a job and you're going to have a good income and your 401k is going to shoot through the roof and everything's going to be great and you'll never have any car trouble either. That's not what he says. He's very real with these people. He's saying, look, I'm here to help you through the struggle. I'm here to encourage some of you, challenge some of you who could help others to help them. But let me just tell you, some of you, he says, will be ruined by this crisis. God does not guarantee that we will survive the crisis the way we want to. He does promise his presence. He does promise that he will work great things out and through the crisis out of and through the crisis. People will be ruined by the crisis. Number two, he says some people have the wherewithal to rescue the fallen from the crisis. Let me just speak for a moment, I don't know who you are. But let me just speak for a moment to those of you who have money. Okay? Now, you know who you are. But but let let me also say this. While I don't know who you are, it's more of you than we'll admit. Hello? And here's what I'm going to say to you. Have you been looking around for the purpose of identifying someone that God is telling you to help? You say, well, man, I'm going through the crisis, and it's tough. I mean, yeah, I've got money. Yeah, I'm still driving my my Lamborghini, but my goodness, what are you you talking about? Listen, have you looked around for the express purpose? I mean, with the intentional purpose of finding somebody that you can help. Now, some of you have. I know you have. I've seen you, (laughs) and I praise God for you, but what about the rest of us? James says there are people who have the wherewithal. Did you get the the verse? He says, brothers. He said, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone, there that person is, the person with the wherewithal, someone should bring him back. Remember this. You see, there are some people who have the wherewithal to help those who have fallen from ruin. Then there's a third principle. If the first two are true, then the third one is implied, and it's this. There is hope for the ruined. I know that for some of you, either because of the economy or because of your health or because of a damaged relationship or because of a failed marriage or because of a rebellious child or because of an unruly parent or some reason in your life, I I know that there are people in this congregation, many of you are here today, Some of you have family members who are not here today, but the reason they're not here today is because they feel beaten down and defeated. But I want you to know, based upon the word of God, there is hope for the fallen. There is hope for those who feel so defeated by life that they are looking up to see the bottom of the barrel. There is hope. These were the type people Jesus hung out with. He didn't hang out with the Pharisees. Heck, I don't think he could stand them. He didn't hang out with the religious folk. He couldn't bear their self-righteous hypocrisy. Listen, he went, he went out and he, when he picked Matthew, Matthew was a, uh, he was a tax collector who was hated by the Jews. And then he went out and he and Matthew went partying. They didn't go out and get drunk. That's not what Jesus did, but he went to where Matthew's friends were in order to reach them. Listen, you know what the problem too many of us, myself included, have? All of our friends are Christians. We don't have any lost friends. And people wonder why we have lost any influence in the, lost, in, in, in the unchurched world, why our membership is declining, why our attendance is declining. Let me tell you why. We don't have any unchurched friends. There's hope for the ruin. The famous Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh was raised as a Christian, but he entered a period in his life where he was discouraged and depressed, and he tossed out his Christian faith. I mean, just tossed it out, abandoned it for a time in his life. And he was painting during that time. And what we now know that, that a lot of people didn't know at the time he lived was that van Gogh attributed certain colors to certain uh, attitudes and feelings in his life. And one of the colors that he attributed uh, to an attitude in his life was the color yellow. He attributed yellow to hope and renewal. During the deepest, darkest part of his life, he painted a famous painting that's called The Starry Night. You've seen it, even though if you didn't know it was Van Gogh, you've seen it. And, And there is yellow in that picture, but it's swirled up in the sky It's in swirls around the sky, something that is unreachable. There is a church in that painting. There's not a bit of yellow anywhere in that church. He had lost hope in the very place, ladies and gentlemen, where he should have found hope, where he should have been able to find hope. But when he looked for hope in the church of his day, he found a place that offered, guess what? No hope. And as a result, hope was somewhere way up in the stars and unreachable for Vincent van Gogh. I'm glad to say that sometime later in his life, the Lord kept working with him, and van Gogh returned to his Christian faith. And he embraced the Lord anew. And during that time when he was was growing again in hope, he painted another painting. It was called The Raising of Lazarus. You may have seen it. It's full of yellow. Full of yellow. It's all about resurrection. Full of yellow. You see, Van Gogh felt that he was like Lazarus, totally dead in failure and defeated. And yet, through his relationship with the Lord, he was resurrected. And so this new painting is full of yellow. Not only that. If you ever see, if you ever see Van Gogh's painting of the raising of Lazarus, look at it very closely. In particular, look at the face of Lazarus. Because in the face of Lazarus, Van Gogh put his own face. Because this painting reflected not only a renewal of hope in his relationship with Christ, but it also depicted the fact that he saw himself as the Lazarus who was raised again to new hope. There is hope for the ruined. Ladies and gentlemen, you will come through your crisis. The final thing that he tells us, James tells us in these two verses is not only is there hope for the ruin, but there is a reward for the rescuer. There's a reward for the rescuer. Whenever you open your eyes and you identify somebody suffering from whatever crisis and you reach out and you touch them and you pray for them and you you develop concrete ways and practical ways to help them, James says here that when you reach out, not only will you rescue a fallen from defeat, but you will cover over a multitude of your own sins. He's not saying that if we help somebody, it buys us salvation. That's not what he's talking about. But what he is saying, that there there are rewards for helping people. First week of 2007, New York City subway, which is a dangerous place to be, a 19-year-old college student suffered a seizure. He was right on the edge of the side walk where the subway comes down when he suffered this seizure and he started convulsing and his body tumbled down into the subway tracks and there was a subway that was within a minute and a half of arriving. Also on the side of the subway uh, walk there was a 50-year-old construction worker. His name was Wesley Autry. Wesley Autry was standing there with his two little girls and he witnessed this 19-year-old student go into convulsions with a seizure and fall down in the tracks. And he waited just for a moment and he looked around to see. There was a big crowd of people there. He looked around to see if anybody was going down to help him. But as you know, if you've seen some of these documentaries, it's quite a common thing that people can be in in really big trouble. Sometimes they can be attacked by gangs on a sidewalk and and people will walk by and, and ignore it as if nothing is happening. But Wesley Autry was not that kind of man. He looked around and he said, I realized that that unless I did something, nobody was going to do something. And he said, I told my girls, I said, girls, stay up here and don't you you follow daddy in here. And he jumped down into the track. He tried to get the the boy, the 19-year-old student. He tried to pick him up, but he was too heavy. And so he, he shoved him into a trough in between the tracks. And then he laid down there with him. And the train whistled over them with just inches to spare. And he saved the young student's life. The mayor of New York gave him the key to the city. Gave him a reward for heroism. Donald Trump gave him $10,000. The city of New York gave him a trip to Disney World. His boss at work at the construction company gave him a hero, hero sandwich. He was invited on David Letterman, the Ellen Show. Somebody asked him how it feels to be such a hero. He said, well, he said, I looked down there and that boy was in those tracks and I knew it was time for that subway to come. And he said, it dawned on me He needed help, and somebody needed to help him, and if I didn't do it, nobody was. And he said, you know, all these accolades and stuff, they're great. But he said, at the end of the day, here's what I was thinking. He said, what better way to start off a day than by saving somebody's life? That's what we're about, ladies and gentlemen. That's what Palmetto Baptist Church is about. It's about saving the fallen. It's about rescuing the ruined. It's about bringing encouragement to to the defeated. It's about finding people who are hurting and offering the salve of your prayers and your companionship and your words of mercy. And when you and I do that, it brings people to the church. It doesn't repel people from the church. No, 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 no. It brings people to the church family. It brings our church family tighter together. When I went to New Orleans Seminary, I had a professor by the name of Dr. Harold Bryson. He probably has had more impact on my life than any man alive. He memorized the book of James one time when he preached it, preached a series through it. And he got to these final two verses, and he was trying to study prepare his heart to preach on these final two verses. And he was driving through his town in in, uh, New Orleans and he saw a record truck go by. Just a tow truck. But there was a slogan written on both sides, on both doors of that record truck. It said, our business is picking up. Ladies and gentlemen, you may not see it. But on that front door and on these side doors... On the back door of the fellowship hall, on the outside of these windows, is our slogan. The business of this church is picking up people. That's what we're about. And to the extent that we do that, we will be the Lord's church. And to the extent that we don't, we'll just be another club that meets here on Sunday morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is gratifying that you are a God who loves the fallen, that you are a Lord whose heart literally melts for the defeated, that your tears Go out to the discouraged. And Lord, I I believe that there are people who are encouraged just by the sheer presence of your precious spirit in this place this morning. And we love you, Lord. Lord, in this congregation today, not only are we encouraged, but I believe that there are people who need to make a decision. For some, it's a decision to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They've never done it, and they need to do it, need to make that decision today. For many of us, Lord, it's a commitment to get on track with what your plan is for our lives and our church. For some of us, Lord, we've been saved, but... We've gotten so far away from you. We barely recognize your voice when you call. And Lord, we need to make a trip to the altar and get things straight again. Lord, move in this place. Let there be a reason that we've come. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.